Amen. Well, hello and good morning to you. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to take them up. Turn with me to Acts chapter 5. Uh, we're going to start in verse 17 and just read through the end of the chapter. For those of you who don't know me, my name is Mike Kesrowski. I'm the lead pastor here at FAC. And if you're new, uh, I would love the opportunity to connect with you uh, and invite you really to be a part of this community uh, here. A bit of recent history for you if you are newer to the FAC family. A lot of you have joined us in the last several months. Um, this month uh, actually marks a year uh, since our former lead pastor left FAC, uh, which is quite odd to think about. It's very wild. Um, when that happened and uh, we were kind of frantically scurrying to figure out what was next and what was going on. The elders actually asked me if I could pick up the mantle to just preach on Sunday mornings in the interim period until we figured out who the new lead pastor was going to be. Uh, and then about five to six months later, uh, we just kind of felt like this was a good fit. And um, they asked me if I would take on the lead pastor role. Yeah, thank you. And so it has been about a year uh, that I've um, been the primary teaching pastor here at FAC, and I do just want to express my thankfulness to you as a congregation uh, because you have been patient, you have been encouraging, and my family and I have been greatly encouraged uh, and blessed by you. Um, given the nature of this role, I feel like... Uh, as a group of people, you have been invited into my spiritual journey personally. Uh, you have an intimate role and play an intimate role in my own spiritual growth, uh, especially within the past year. I will say that the past 12 months has been quite a roller coaster. There have been some of the uh, highest celebrations I've ever experienced, and then there's other moments where I've uh, been brought absolutely to my knees, uh, just in contention with, with God. Um, and this is a pattern in life. Perhaps you sit here today and you say, I'm at one of those peaks right now. It's high celebration time in my life spiritually, or perhaps you come with a heavy burden and you sit here saying, no, actually, I'm in, in the valley right now. Um, I, I'm, I'm not feeling so, so great. And the, the nice thing about this is that we actually see this pattern in Scripture. While life is a shifting sand, we can trust that the Word of God is a firm foundation. And uh, as we've been traveling through the book of Acts together, we've been studying this community of first believers as they go out to the world and proclaim the message of Jesus. And we actually see this roller coaster that they are emotionally invested in, right? There, there have been moments of peaks of success, uh, but we've also shared in some of their valleys, Last week was one of their peaks. They were in the temple, they're preaching, uh, more people than ever are coming to know who Jesus is and following him. There's signs and wonders, they're healing people that are coming from the Judean countryside, and it seems like ministry couldn't get better and ministry couldn't be more successful. And now, as we read chapter 5, the rest of it, we see that the apostles are quickly humbled and brought into a valley. And so let's read it together from verse 17 on to the end of the chapter. This is what it says. 
But the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. Now, when the high priest came and those who were with him, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. But when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison, so they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors, but when we opened them, we found no one inside. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, they were greatly perplexed about them, wondering what this would come to. And someone came and told them, look, the men who you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. And when they had brought them, they set them before the council and the high priest questioned them saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witnesses to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you are about to do with these men. For before these days, Thotis rose up, claiming to be somebody, and a number of men, about 400, joined him. He was killed, and all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing. After him, Judas, the Galilean, rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him. He too perished, and all who followed him were scattered. So in the present case, I tell you, keep away from these men and let them alone. For if this plan or this undertaking is of man, it will fail. But if it is of God, you will not be able to overthrow them. You might even be found opposing God. So they took his advice. And when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple of, and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ is Jesus. Would you pray with me before we begin? Heavenly Father, we come weak to this task of knowing you and understanding your word. And we recognize, Father, that we have nothing to offer. Lord, we cannot bring anything to the table today in hopes that we would understand your word. And so we are asking for your spirit to divinely intervene in this moment and shape us by your words, Father. We would ask, Father, as we study your word, 
that this would have application in our hearts and that we would have a greater understanding and knowledge of who you are and who your son Jesus is and who the Holy Spirit is. And in your holy name I pray, amen. This past week I was made fun of for quoting C.S. Lewis too much. And so I'm going to move away from him to his buddy, J.R.R. Tolkien. (laughs) Tolkien, uh, if you're not familiar, wrote Lord of the Rings. And if you're unfamiliar with the story, it tells the tale of an evil dark lord named Sauron who forged a powerful ring that was to be used as the ultimate weapon in his campaign to conquer Middle-earth. To make a very long, a very, very, very long story short, by sheer chance, the ring winds up in the hands of a little hobbit uh, named Frodo. And it's later determined that the ring must be destroyed, but it can only be destroyed in the flames of Mount Doom, which are located, which is located in Mordor, which is way on the other side of Middle Earth. And so a group of people, they called it the Fellowship, set out with Frodo to destroy the ring. But as the story plays out, you actually read and see about these just absolute forces of evil that are coming up against the Fellowship. There's just a constant barrage of evil. Even the ring itself seems to possess this influential evil power. If you watched the movies, by the time you get to the end of the second one called The Two Hours, you're like 11 hours into it at this point, right? There's this moment where you just feel the enemy and the antagonism coming up against Frodo and his friends. You're watching this and you're wondering, are the bad guys really going to win? Is is evil really going to win the day? Because this seems like a very hopeless situation. Near the end of the movie, Frodo has this breaking point where he's about to just give in to this evil and he turns to his buddy Sam and he says, Sam, I can't do this. I can't do this. And Sam replies by saying, it's like the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were. And sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? Sam is just aggressively pondering how evil the world is that they live in and how hard it is to experience such hostility. Now he goes on and makes this epic speech that we'll save for another time. But in our context, we can relate to that feeling. You read the news and you scroll through social media and you just see before your very own eyes the dark descent of the world and you ask the question, are the bad guys really going to win? Has evil truly won the day? 
Every day it seems like the world descends a little bit darker and it seems that every day believers in Jesus are becoming more and more the minority and more prone to persecution and hostility. We can take, once again, great comfort to know that this is a pattern the apostles experienced. The passage we read a moment ago describes this increased hostility toward them. They're preaching in Solomon's portico, which is located in the temple, where they were warned not to. And so it's no surprise that they draw some attention from the temple officials. The story sounds similar in nature to the first time Peter and John were arrested back at the beginning of Acts chapter 4. But there's some nuances here that suggest that the hostility has actually increased because we see it manifest itself in different ways. We see hostility towards the the, the apostles uh, manifest emotionally. We see it manifest um, legally. And we also see this hostility manifest itself physically. There's emotional hostility, there's legal hostility, and there's physical hostility. Those three points... I pulled from another pastor. His name is Kevin DeYoung. He's excellent. just want to give credit where credit is due, but I would like to spend um, a portion of our time this morning just walking through and examining how these three forms of hostility took shape. And so starting in verse 17, we, we read that as the apostles were doing their thing in the temple, that the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. The source that motivated these temple officials to act was their jealousy. Their their jealousy is a well and it's just filled to the brim. Because they're watching as people are literally flocking to the apostles. And the apostles are, are filling Jerusalem, they say, with this. They're, they're looking at the apostles like they're some kind of a disease. You're, you're filling Jerusalem with this message. And we are jealous. We are furiously jealous about what's going on. And it just developed this intense distaste for the apostles. So much so that they attempt to silence it by putting them in prison. And it's very specific that they were put in a public prison. In other words, this could mean that they were arrested publicly for all to see. The the temple officials are making an example out of the apostles to the rest of the people. This goes on along with the emotional hostility as the officials are essentially shaming the apostles in front of everyone. Because we know this, if you've ever been reprimanded in public in front of other people, this, this brings quite a degree of humiliation. Right? And so what the temple officials are do, doing when they make the arrest publicly, they're intentionally shaming them, saying, you're, you're bad. What you're doing is bad, and we want everybody here to see that what you're doing is bad, and if any of you think that you're going to be like them, or share the message like them, or go and do the things like them, you're going to be bad too. It's a public shame to make the apostles feel bad what they've done. And the emotional hostility doesn't end there. After the apostles are brought to trial and give their testimony, 
Take a look at verse 33. They proclaim the gospel, and in response to this, this is what verse 33 says, that when they, being the temple officials, when they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They were so furious to the point that they wanted to take the lives of these men. Now, there have been times that I have been significantly angry. There have been times that I've been angry at my family. I've been angry at my friends. When I was a youth pastor, there was a lot of times I'd get angry at students. I get angry at my dog sometimes. But I have never reached a point in my anger that I not only wanted someone to die, but I wanted to be the executioner. I hope you haven't either because how much rage does somebody have to have to desire to kill someone? To say, you are having such a negative impact on my life. I hate you and hate everything about you and everything you preach so much that I'm going to do something about it that I'm going to fix it by taking matters into my own hands. This is what the Jewish leaders have determined for the apostles, that they're going to do something about it. And you'll notice their reaction in verse 33 isn't just a reaction to the apostles as people, but specifically a reaction to what they said. What, What sparks their rage? Verse 33 says, when they heard this, They were enraged. What is this? It was the gospel message. It was the message of Jesus Christ that they heard. And when they heard the message of Jesus Christ, they were enraged because the Jewish leaders hate the message of Jesus and therefore are emotionally hostile to the apostles who bear the word of God. Not only do we see an emotional hostility, but there's a legal hostility. The craziest thing about all of this is that according to the Jewish law, this council had every right to arrest these men. So they do. And they had every right to question them. And they had every right to put them to death should they convict them. You hear that phrase often that somebody should be punished to the full extent of the law. Well, this is what they're doing. This is what the temple officials are attempting. They're going as far as the law allows them. And Jewish law was much more permissive uh, of harsh action and harsh punishment than our laws are today. And what the Jewish leaders are doing through this process by imprisoning the apostles and then putting them to trial and attempting to reach a verdict, they are flexing their authoritative muscles. What's happening is that the success of the apostles has upset the apple cart. And the leaders are getting a little nervous because they're losing some of their power and some of their control over the people. And so they take legal measures in order to demonstrate the type of power and authority that they have in their position. Basically to proclaim, hey, look, we're still in charge here. And and you're going to know it. We're still the authority. We're still the final say. And so they're throwing this out there. And they just want the apostles to fold under such power. And so this is why they march them before the council. 
the, the council in this instance is what scripture calls the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was made up of 70 men and the high priest, and it was the highest ruling body in all of Israel. They had the power to be all three, judge, jury, and executioner. In our context, this would be like being brought in front of the legislative, executive, and judicial branch, all under one roof. It would be like going into a room and sitting there as all of Congress, you've got the president, and you've got the Supreme Court justices all at the same spot. And for the Jewish people, they're all there. They're all gathered to put an end to the spread of this message because they hate the word of God. And so they demonstrate legal hostility. And then finally, we see at the end of the passage that they display physical hostility. Eventually, they do decide to release the apostles, but before they go, they have some parting gifts for them. They beat these apostles senselessly. It's safe to assume that this beating is the famous 39 lashes. According to Jewish law, which they were so concerned about, Um, No more than 40 lashes was appropriate for a physical punishment. And so the Jews would do this thing called the 40 minus one in case somebody miscounted. They they were afraid of accidentally breaking the law. And so they would only do 39 lashes in the event that somebody miscounted. And what they would do is take this whip that was a braided leather. And from this braided leather were, were three strands that came out of the whip And oftentimes at the end of these three strands, there was tied sharp pieces of metal or sharp pieces of bone. This whip that they would flog the apostles with was designed to rip the skin off of you. That was the intent. And so you could imagine as as they take the first strike, the sting, And you can imagine as the lashings continue, the skin starting to break open and then the lashing hitting over the skin over and over and over and over again. This was such a brutal ordeal that some people didn't even survive. And they would be whipped across the back and they would be whipped across the chest. And so you could imagine the type of scarring that would take place, a permanent mark All while the temple officials are saying, when you see those scars in the mirror, I want you to think of us. You remember, let those scars serve as a remembrance for us and what we told you. Remember that we told you not to preach about that Jesus guy anymore. Once again, these officials hated the message of Jesus Christ and they were exerting all of their effort, emotionally, legally, physically. They were doing whatever they could to stop it. These are classic fear-mongering tactics. And when you put it in today's context, we are still experiencing that kind of hostility that stems from a hatred to the word of God. 
2,000 years later, there is still opposition. People still hate the message of Jesus Christ, and they are still expressing hostility emotionally, legally, and physically. On the emotional standpoint, what do you, what do you mean we're sinners? What do you mean that there's only one way to heaven and it's Jesus? What do you mean I'm going to go to hell if I don't follow Jesus? That's so unloving of you. That's so intolerant of you. From an emotional standpoint, believers are often made to believe that we're the evil ones, that we're the bad guys. From a legal standpoint, religious freedom and liberties are now up for debate. We have begun to see a great deal of effort in the judicial system that represses freedom in religion. This began to ramp up back in 2015 in the Obergefell versus Hodges case that went to the Supreme Court and ended with a decision to legalize same-sex marriage in all 50 states. This case ramped up the debate of religious liberty specifically because of a certain interaction in the oral arguments, uh, specifically between Justice Samuel Alito and Solicitor General Donald Varelli. In the oral arguments, Justice Alito referred to a prior case about a private college that was stripped of its tax-exempt status because they opposed interracial marriage. In light of this, Justice Alito asked the Solicitor General if the same would apply to a university or a college if it opposed same-sex marriage. And the Solicitor General responded in the oral arguments by saying, I don't think I can answer that question without knowing more specifics, but it's certainly going to be an issue. I do not deny that. Last year, David French, who's a senior writer for National Review Magazine, um, wrote an article for the Wall Street Journal entitled, Yes, American Religious Liberty is in Peril. In this article, French pointed to this moment in the oral arguments to make his case that religious liberty is, in fact, in peril in our country. Now, listen to what French writes in reflection to this specific moment. He says, and just like that, millions of American Christians could easily and quickly imagine a future where uh, the law held their traditional Orthodox religious beliefs in the same regard as it held the views of vile racists. But Christians who had been paying attention knew of this risk well before Obergefell. Christians who had been paying attention had seen a trend where legal activists at all levels of government had been aggressively expanding their regulatory and ideological attacks on religious liberty. That's just one example. But in today's context, we are experiencing a growing legal hostility towards believers in this matter. On the final one, thankfully in America, we haven't faced uh, much physical persecution or hostility yet. 
But sadly, this isn't the case for the rest of the world. There are estimates that anywhere from 10,000 to 100,000 believers are put to death for their faith every single year. Physical hostility. As we reflect on this, on the growing hostility emotionally, legally, physically, we as Christians just tend to cower. We, we just kind of shrink in this moment. And I don't know what it is, but Christians are very good at cowering. We give in to the fear mongering, right? And we just, we just sort of panic. And we start, we start talking to other believers and we panic with them and we get into like these big old panic huddles and we post on social media about how much we need to, to panic, Right? We say they, they've hurt our feelings. They're, they're going to hurt our children's feelings. They're, they're taking away our religious rights. They're taking away our religious liberties. They're, they're, they're going to take away our guns and then retaliate against us. And, and we just do such an excellent job playing up the role of the victim. Almost to say, woe are us who believe. Woe are us. Now, I know that those are some very broad and generalized statements to some very complex issues. However, when we read this passage, we have to know that the presence of hostility isn't the main point of the passage. What is the main point? What is... The, the meant to be the main takeaway for us this morning. The main point of this passage is that despite all of this opposition and despite all of this hostility, the message of Jesus Christ cannot be stopped. There is no guarantee that we won't experience opposition in the process. And there is no guarantee that it won't be painful and that it won't be costly. But God does guarantee that no matter what, his word will go forth. And God is so determined that his word gets out because the work of God is done through the word of God. It's another quote that I have heard. The, the work of God is the, the word of God. And he's so determined to do his work. He's so determined that his word gets out that he will go to extreme measures to ensure its delivery. God is so determined about his word going out that should the delivery of his word come up against any kind of opposition and any kind of hostility, God himself in his sovereignty, will intervene. We see it happen twice in our passage. One through extraordinary means, the other through ordinary means. But first, we see uh, God's extraordinary intervention in verses 19 through 20. The, the apostles are arrested, they're thrown in jail, and then sometime in the middle of the night, the angel of the Lord came, uh, comes and opens the prison doors. And if I wasn't clear earlier, 
This divine intervention proves that it is not God's intent in this moment to save or deliver the apostles from persecution. That is not the primary reason why he is releasing them from prison. And we know that's the case because of the very first thing that the angel says after releasing the men. Notice the angel doesn't say, make haste and flee. They're trying to kill you. Get out. No, no. he's saying, go stand in the temple. You know that place that you got arrested? Go back there. And you know what you got arrested for? Go do that again. Go stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. As if God is saying, the reason I am opening up your prison cell is so that you can continue to share the message of Jesus. God is divinely intervening in an extraordinary way so that the proclamation of his word would not be halted. The angel is not sent to deliver or to protect the apostles from harm because later on they'll be beaten. Like we've mentioned, and there was no angel. In a couple of weeks, we'll look at chapter 6 where Stephen a disciple of Jesus, a follower, is stoned, put to death, and there is no angel. No, the angel commissions the apostles to go back to the place they were arrested and to preach the message that they were arrested for. What do you think is going to happen? To this point in Acts, they've preached in the temple two times, and two times they've been apprehended. And so the very next morning, the council gathers and they go to retrieve their prisoners and the door is locked, but no one's inside. And this causes them to be perplexed. And the scene plays out almost comically. You, you see this kind of thing in a sitcom with a laugh track, right? The, the high priest says, oh, where are the prisoners? And the guards are like, I don't know. Do you know? I don't know, right? And they're all just kind of looking at each other. The doors are locked and nobody came here. I don't know what's going on. And they're, they're standing there with their heads scratched, uh, scratching their heads, And then all of a sudden, somebody comes into the council and says, hey, I found the prisoners, but they're not prisoners anymore. They're out in the temple, and they're preaching again. And so they're they're just completely confused. And they they go and they get the prisoners back, right? They, They apprehend them for a third time. And the apostles are brought to court so that they can uh, speak for themselves, right? They, they're, they're asked to answer for these heinous crimes that they're committing. And what they say, as we mentioned, leaves the council furious, so furious that they desire to kill them so that they would be silenced once and for all. And once again, as opposition and hostility come up against the message of Jesus, God intervenes, this time through an ordinary measure. In in God's sovereignty, as the council is on the brink of executing the apostles, a Pharisee who's not even a believer named Gamaliel speaks up. Don't think for a second that God is unable to use non-believers, their words and their actions toward accomplishing his will. No, in his sovereignty, Gamaliel is in the right place at the right time and he begins to talk. And what does he say? He references two failed rebellions before and simply claims that if this movement 
is of human origin and not of God, then the movement will die just like the ones before it. However, if it's of God, there's nothing that we're going to be able to do to stop it. And in fact, if we try to stop it, we won't be opposing the apostles, but we will be opposing God himself. And so would you just let it be? Gamaliel, in his understanding of God, seems to recognize the recklessness of opposing God and his unstoppable word. A few years ago, I was invited to play a pickup football game. It was like a turkey bowl um, around Thanksgiving, and in my foolishness, I went. See, I'm extremely competitive, but I'm not very athletic, which is a terrible combination and because I'm a bigger guy, I always wind up on uh, playing a lineman position in these type of football games. And as, at one point in the game, I'm on defense, and I'm playing on the line, uh, and the offense only had about five or ten more yards to go before they scored a touchdown. And I look up, and I see who's standing at running back is Cordell Quinn. <laughs> if you don't know Cordell, he is the behemoth of a man that often plays drums for us. And if, and if you thought he played the drums hard, you should see him play football. So I'm on the defensive line and I'm like sizing Cordell up. I'm thinking if Cordell gets the ball and if he runs up in the middle, I'm going to tackle him and everybody's going to cheer for me and it's going to be awesome. And sure enough, on the very first play that he was in the game, Cordell gets the ball. And sure enough, he runs up the middle. And sure enough, I try to tackle him. And I will tell you, I have never been hit that hard in my life. <laughs> I think I still have a concussion from it. I'm supposed to be laying the hurt on him, and he is laying the hurt on me. And what's, what's worse is that after the game, I go up to him, and I'm talking about him in this specific moment in the game, and he's all like, oh, you tried to tackle me? I didn't, I didn't, even, I didn't even know you were there. All this to say, if you go up against the delivery of God's word, it will be painful. It will hurt because it cannot be stopped. Gamaliel understands this, yet he does make a critical mistake. He resorts to fatalism. It's this idea of let's just let fate play it out. Let's just see what happens. He doesn't make a commitment to Christ. He doesn't carefully consider their words, but rather decides to just wait it out. This is not an appropriate approach to the message of Jesus because for all we know, Gamaliel dies waiting to see whether the Christian movement is really from God. By the time Gamaliel realizes that this is indeed an authentic undertaking from God, he is much too late. Instead, when he heard the message of Jesus, Gamaliel should have said, let me carefully consider the truthfulness of these claims. What are the claims the apostles make? And what are the claims that I am going to make this morning? 
It's in verses 30 to 31 that you can study and read for your own time. But to summarize, the claim is that Jesus hung on a cross and he died. But then he was resurrected and he was exalted as leader and savior. And all of those who repent, who look to Jesus as their leader and savior, will be forgiven of their sins. The wonderful thing about this passage is that the apostles are sharing their gospel. They're not looking to defend themselves. In fact, the, the, the charge is that you're filling this message when we told you not to fill it uh, in, in Jerusalem. You're putting his blood on our hands and the apostles are saying guilty is charged. If that's what you're charging us, yes, that's what you're doing. But forgiveness is on the table. They went to the temple officials. They share the gospel with the intent of knowing that it was not too late for the temple officials. Instead, they resort to just let's wait and see. As you sit here in this moment, the offer for the forgiveness of your sins, the offer for salvation is on the table. Don't embrace the, uh, the Gamaliel uh, folly and say, let's just wait and see. I believe that many people, even in this room, are waiting around to see what's going to happen. But the call for repentance is today. The call is happening in this moment. And you have this moment. I cannot guarantee you're next. So I plead with you, would you carefully consider these claims rather than wait it out? Carefully consider that we are sinners separated from God, but that Jesus Christ died on the cross and was resurrected so that I may be forgiven of my sins and brought back into a relationship with God when I trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I would ask, Lord, that there wouldn't be a single person in this room that would wait it out. Lord, I, I pray that they would understand in their, in their heart and in their mind that if they leave this room uh, without um, considering this claims, it, it is the equivalent of saying, let's wait and see. Father, we know that your word cannot be stopped and we know that your, your work cannot be stopped through your word, Father. And so I pray that you would impress it on our hearts to get on the train because we know we can't stop it. We thank you for your authority, Father. We thank you for your supremacy, Lord. And I pray that we would fall in love with it and declare you Lord of uh, this church and Lord of our life. I lift up our offering to you, Father, as we collect it. I ask that it would be uh, multiplied and, and used to, to go to the, to the nations to tell of this word that cannot be stopped. And in your holy name I pray, amen.